Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. The tragedy of large-scale trauma has etched the names of cities on a national monument of heartbreak and senseless loss. First responders, caregivers, and civic leaders are often left with the daunting task of navigating the emotional and physical aftermath and stitch their communities back together, a trajectory of healing that can take months and years. My guest is Melissa Glaser. She's a community response and recovery leader. She was the coordinator of the Newtown Recovery and Resilience Team from 2014 to 2016, dealing with the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. Her new book, Healing a Community, offers real-world advice from one of the country's preeminent community response and recovery leaders. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Melissa Glaser. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. You wrote a book, Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After a Large-Scale Trauma. Now, you're not just looking at this in a clinically detached way, you, you lived through this in what was what was it the second biggest mass shooting at the time it happened? At the time, absolutely. Not so much now, unfortunately. Um, you know, these tragedies continue um, in, our, in our nation and our world. But yes, I uh, was hired to be in charge of all the community recovery work in Sandy Hook, uh, a year and a half after the um, school shooting. I, I, you talk about, in the book, I, I was struck by this. It, it, it was a really poignant the way you told the story in the book, and then it made me think a lot about just the effects of trauma, that you were actually, within a day or something, contacted by a family who was asking you to help a family. I think they had four children and lost someone, and to talk about how, how do I break this to the kids. And, and you helped the family, and it was you know, you were able to give them some support. And then you saw them a couple months later at a sort of healing meeting. For, and, and you didn't you say you didn't know what to say. I, I, I thought this is all I don't want to make them comfortable. And your eyes meet and you extend your hand. I'm glad to see you here. And they didn't even know who you were. That's right. And, and you, you say that's just how trauma works, right? Like they had no memory of the time they spent with you. Yeah. So that was very telling for me in terms of the depths of trauma and this complicated grief that I talk about in the book. Um, so I spent, you know, uh, four or five really heart-wrenching hours with them that afternoon. And um, that will be sealed in my memory forever and the details of it. But uh, yes, this is what grief looks like. So when I uh, saw them at this workshop, I thought, hmm, I don't want to make them uncomfortable because it's supposed to be interactive. And uh, when I went over to say hello, they looked at me um, as if they had never seen me before. So, um, yeah, that, that gives you a snapshot of how, um, it, you know, this uh, trauma reaction, you know, the, the type of impact, um, how um, these families had so many people um, coming at them and they were really at, um, you know, ground zero in terms of being able to have ego strength and, um, it, you know, uh, express uh, what their needs were. 
and even, uh, you know, um, hold on to, you know, some of the process that was going on that day. And when you say complicated grief, I mean, grief is a normal part of human life, right? I mean, it's, and it's okay to feel sad about sad things. There's a natural sort of rhythm to that reality. But, but complex grief, you talk about in the book, but something happens unexpectedly. It, it, it causes a, trauma, a traumatic experience because of the unexpectedness, or maybe it's particularly horrible or, or both. And so this is, you, you're not, it's not like a, a, a long, a, a spouse that's degenerating or something and, and, and you're preparing for it and thinking about the loss. And this is much harder to deal with, right? Because it comes so out of the blue and they're not some of the familiar cultural resources and things to help get you through because it's such a, it's such a, a unique experience for everyone involved. Yeah. So we talk about complicated grief in terms of, you know, those losses that occur um, many times um, in an aggressive manner and certainly um, in a manner that is um, completely uh, unwarranted and, um, and nobody is expecting. And, uh, you know, with this particular event, you know, these were young children, babies, as the news, um, uh, you know, illustrated. And uh, it was the shooting happened at the hands of somebody that was a neighbor and known in the community. And um, within a few short minutes, you know, 26 people were gone. So it's hard um, to come to grips with that. And there are so many layers um, that uh, family members and those close to the, the lost ones um, have to come to grips with. And, you know, there's no place to put those intense, really strong feelings. On top of that, you're living in a small community where you feel like you're in a fishbowl, so to speak. You go to the grocery store and you're noticed um, and people come up to you or they don't because they don't know what to say. You take your other children to a soccer game and you feel completely um, isolated, even though everybody's around you, because nobody can possibly know what it feels like to be in your shoes. Um, so everywhere you turn there's more triggers and reminders of the intense grief. And as part of the intensity, you talk about in the book how people move to places like Sandy Hook yeah. to, to not have some of the fragility and chaos that you might have in a metro like Boston or New York or Hartford. And so maybe it hits harder even because you, you know everybody and this is a sheltered place and it's, there's some affluence and security. And so it's kind of like the... Your blanket is pulled out from under. Your rug is pulled out from under you in a really dramatic way. Yeah. And, you, you know, you send your children off to a nice, safe uh, elementary school and kiss them goodbye and say, we'll see you after school. Um, and that isn't the case. Um, so at the time, yes, all of the things that you're saying were um, absolutely um, prevalent and, and relevant. I opened the book with a statement about how Newtown or Sandy Hook was a quintessential New England small town with that feel. Everybody knows everybody else. Um, now, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing uh, shootings, you know, that occur in every community, um, you know, and so to speak, in people's backyards. It's not just, um, you know, far away in those cities anymore. So um, there, there is this pervasive sense of where am I safe um, or where are my children safe? Yeah. And 
I wonder, is the prevalence of these shootings, I mean, do you think it's got something to do with, because it's a, it's a, it's a new phenomenon. You talk in the book when you're trained, you didn't, you didn't, you weren't trained as a clinician in the, in the era of these mass shootings. I wonder how much of this is, even though we're in a, in a, a more interconnected world with information technology, it seems that people feel more and more alienated. Yeah. And are more fragile psychologically, developmentally sometimes, especially if if you're somebody, it's usually males, it's usually, that don't have a lot of social fabric tying them to things, right? I mean, so this is probably something that tragically, because of our cultural circumstances, it's probably not going away tomorrow. That's right. I, I think, you know, we now are, you know, immersed in a culture where there's not only isolation, but lots of disillusionment. You know, it is hard for many people to uh, make a go of it. Um, it's hard for many people to have an image of what is success and um, to, to really be able to achieve that these days without lots of challenges and stumbling blocks. Um, and, you know, the, the isolation um, perpetrates this uh, depression, anxiety, um, you know, mental health issues um, are now um, being closeted. And uh, there are not a lot of easy access um, ways for people to get uh, to get help, to walk into a door um, or an office and say, you know, I need help right now. You know, we ha- there's this term that's thrown around sometimes, Copernican revolution. You know, after Copernicus and, and, and a sort of worldview shift it was to say, hey, no, it's we're not in a geocentric, we're in a heliocentric universe. And, and sometimes people talk about it with Immanuel Kant and philosophy and what he taught us about how we know and perceive things. Would you say there's almost like a Copernican revolution in psychology around trauma? Because you even talk in the book about how your own cognitive, some of your own cognitive behavioral training, just you realize that now what we're learning about trauma, you, you had to go deeper than this. And it just seems like we know so much more. Is that fair to say that this is a, a something that's we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg around how, how trauma affects us deeply? Yeah, I think it's remarkable in the last 10 years how um, we've come along to realize that trauma has to do with, you know, uh, the impact of trauma has to do with treating the whole person, mind, body, everything's connected. Um, and we're continuing to, you know, find inroads, not only strategies and treatments that work, but lots of research in, you know, the neurobiology um, of humans and that, uh, you know, talk therapy is going to open the surface or touch the surface, but it's not necessarily going to resolve uh, um, all the symptoms or the impact. So, yes. Um, but again, it's still difficult to um, find uh, people that are well-skilled um, in understanding all of that and access uh, to that for many people. And, and, and this is elusive, right? Because I guess, you know, if you're having, if you've had a, a, a traumatic experience and you, you relive it, I mean, you talk about the, the, there's different parts of the central nervous system and sometimes you, you get, maybe it starts in your stomach or in your upper chest and you're, and you're having that, that traumatic memory is kind of lodged in your central nervous system and, and your frontal lobe is trying to figure it out. Right. And, and, and tell a story to make sense of it when really it's deeper than that, right? Sometimes it's not something that the frontal lobe can just kind of figure out and make a story about that. You've got to go deeper into the whole body. That's right. So, you know, what we encountered was lots of people coming in for help and um, they were so dysregulated that it didn't really matter what we were saying. They were not able to process the words. Um, And we had to really work hard at getting 
their bodies to be regulated to, you know, using other strategies to get them grounded before they could do the cognitive work. Um, and that's so important. You know, lots of people say I'm a trauma-informed therapist. When we came into town, you know, I formulated a team. Um, we started to kind of assess uh, where uh, the gaps in treatment were, where the needs were, and um, found that there were lots of people saying, I know how to do this, but it wasn't really adequate because they weren't well-versed on treating the whole body. So, um, you know, that was how we started to build our resource bank and bring in experts and, you know, um, really prop up the individuals that um, had this higher level um, clinical trauma experience. Yeah, I know a therapist that told me that she saw breakthroughs with several patients, clients a- after doing yoga. That mm-hmm. just like the, the dam, it was like the dam broke, and and it was so much. They were in such a better place to do the work they wanted to do, just because again they learned about their own body and and were able to calm and quiet things and regulate more in ways that like. And then other forms of therapy were much more effective once yeah. the regulation was able to kind of be accessed. Yeah. And so a lot of what we did, you know, my um, care coordinators would layer treatments. So they would have people go for, um, you know, more of those uh, physical treatments like yoga, maybe meditation, um, and uh, and then more creative treatments, art therapy, music therapy, um, and then um, work with the, uh, the cognitive-based um, strategies. And that seemed to be um, the road to success, to getting someone from a place of looking for recovery to a place where they really felt uh, much more resilient in their lives. You talk about your experience of putting together, receiving a grant and, and other resources to actually come up with a sort of comprehensive care strategy. And one of the things you do, I mean, you list it, all the people that are affected that you didn't first think about, right? Not just teachers and parents, but grave diggers, nurses, yeah. clergy people, you know, they're doing more funerals and, and hard, harder to do funerals, you know, and these things that, that the whole town, I mean, there, it, it's just like a, like a, you know, if somebody has severe, has a, is struggling with mental illness in a family, it's going to affect the whole family system, right? A traumatic event like this happens in a small town. The whole system of the town is affected. Yeah. I, I, I know I didn't. I don't think anybody on my team realized the magnitude um, of uh, the impact. So, um, you know, eventually we started calling it the ripple effect. Um, and somebody new would walk in that we had, you know, no thought of, you know, it, it would have impacted this person. And, you know, there was another ripple. Uh, we were the space that we um, set our site up. In, uh, was an old building on the um, grounds of a um, mental hospital that had been shut down. And uh, we needed some work done on the roof. And uh, we got to know the guys that were coming in doing the work for a couple of weeks. And uh, one of them came in for a cup of coffee. And I said, you know, how are you doing? And he said, well, I've been better. I've been drinking a lot more these days. You know, I moonlight as a grave digger and I um, d- dug the graves of six of the children. And, uh, you know, it was another, oh boy, you know, it didn't see this one coming. But, uh, you know, the the babysitter that, uh, you know, um, spent her summer babysitting for a family that lost a child or the soccer coach um, 
you know, the person at the gym that was training the parent of, of a child that was lost. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm interested how social media affects this. You know, if you're a family, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the political debates rage on immediately after, after the, and then you have the arguments about, are you politicizing this or when better than to act? And then you have these awful things like Infowars that are saying it's a hoax. And then, I mean, it, it, it pre social media and the internet, right? Like that, this, this tragedy would have largely been the town's own experience. You know, there might've been a newspaper article, but it wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't just be in the news cycle day in, day out with other people sort of, it feels like other people are, are rummaging around maybe in, in, in your underwear drawer or something. Other people are kind of, are kind of playing with an experience that, that, that's traumatic to you and, and, and feels so intimate. And yet they're treating it like something to tweet about and, and argue about with people they don't know. I mean, is that, is there kind of a violating experience to that? I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder, did people talk about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was a, a, a great period of time where um, people were just so um, untrusting and leery of who was showing up next with a camera um, or uh, with a story that they wanted to tell and who can you trust? And eventually it was just please get out of our town. You know, please let us go back to living without the cameras on us. So, um, you know, the hoaxers um, were so um, extremely damaging and um, sad at, you know, continuing to rip open those wounds for the families. But, um, you know, on top of that, all the all the good, well-intended people that, you know, sent all kinds of items and letters and notes that just came flooding in that the town was overwhelmed with and not knowing how to manage. Um, you know, I think we all saw um, shortly after the images of, you know, some family members that it felt like they were being exposed um, by somebody wanting to fill up some airtime and not really understanding that um, they didn't have the language um, to speak about what was really happening for them, nor did they have um, the uh, guidance, you know, for um, somebody to say, maybe this isn't a good thing for you to do right now, um, or maybe um, you need to think about um, what you're saying before you get out there in front. So, yes, you know, lot that created this sense of fracturing. You know, we, we, that was a word that was used in Sandy Hook all of the time a sense of distrust you know um does somebody have my back or not is this to advance their own agenda or not um is this going to be helpful or not does this expose my other children or not does this expose my dead child or not yeah and those questions about social media and people that haven't experienced a tragic loss and and been traumatized have a tough time figuring out social media, their children, their family, right? I mean, it, 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 it's debilitating when you're, you, you, you can barely think or, or remember things and you've got to deal with all this. Yes. You know, and, and it's a hard line to draw, right? We want to, we want the world to know, um, to try to, you know, make some sense out of these events and, you know, try to, um, you know, uh, construct laws to try to construct some safety nets um, to try to help with education and understanding and awareness. However, um, 
you know, you, you have to be very careful when it leans to the side of promoting, um, you know, an agenda that is not beneficial or productive. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Do you think that there's also a, an effect on the wider culture when these things become national events? I mean, is there a sort of ch- changing, like, it, you know, people that live in all these small towns, it, I mean, the, your town could be next kind of thing. I mean, that seems like a something that causes like a, a, a sort of low grade mass anxiety or something. Right. I mean, that, cause this, cause everybody is watching all the time when these, when these happen. Right. It does. Um, on one hand, on the other hand, it is kind of a reality right now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we do now have a generation of children that are growing up to realize that, you know, I could walk into a shopping mall or a movie theater or a school and not walk out. Um, so yes, uh, we we have created by all the mass media a sense of anxiety um, around all of this, but some of it is real. How has this experience changed you personally? I mean, what what were the deepest impacts on your own story? Because I mean, you're not just a a therapist, a clinician. You're a person <laughs> living in the midst of the experience. I mean, what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, uh, I often sit back and wonder, how did I get there, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors, you know, sitting around my table at the holidays were lots of people that had tattoos on their arms, you know, from being in a concentration camp. Um, so I know that I do this work um, because um, I've been immersed in it most of my life and always, you know, fascinated with um how do people survive after extreme tragedy? Um, you know, I, I think how it changed me, number one, absolutely. You know, I realized the inadequacy. You know, I've been in this field for 30 years and uh, realized very quickly the inadequacies of, um, you know, my training and needing to expand, um, you know, what I was doing 
to encompass um, a lot of this new research. Um, I also, you know, part of the reason for writing this book was I wanted clinicians and leaders that are finding themselves in immersed in this work to realize that you're not necessarily going to walk into um, assisting people and they're going to embrace you and welcome you and say, we're so glad you're here. In fact, for me, a lot of it was the opposite. And um, because people are so traumatized and, and in so much pain, um, it is very messy work and you have to really have a thick skin. You have to, you know, learn how to take those hits or those bruises and um, take care of yourself um, and uh, understand where it's coming from in order to do the work. So um, I certainly learned that. <laughs> yeah. So you're not necessarily going to get validated for all the healing work, right? I mean, it, it, that's tough at the end of the day when yeah. you've helped people that, that that probably didn't want help or were struggling, didn't know how to receive it. That's That's got to take its toll at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, I, I tell a story in the book, you know, one of my first encounters with some of the uh, the families that lost a child, there were um, three mothers that had requested um, to meet with me, which I thought was terrific. I had just been there a few weeks. So we set up um, a place to meet and I came in, you know, positively thinking I, it was a good opportunity for me to introduce myself and hear from them about where they were and what their needs were. And about two minutes into the meeting, one of the mothers leaned forward and said to me, let's face it, Melissa, you wouldn't have a job if my daughter wasn't murdered. And uh, so that was kind of the introduction of, uh huh, <laughs> you know, this is what this work is going to be like. Um, and, you know, you really I took a deep breath and sat back for a moment and then had to understand where that was coming from and um, and respect it and then work through it. Uh, so. Many of my, you know, because I was the uh, leader of this team, um, I I was the face that was out there, kind of fighting for the the work and and going getting through the politics and you know trying to get our agenda across when so many um, in town had the agenda of everybody's okay, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so it, it was important for me in this book to portray that side of it. So people know going into it, that's what you're going to get for a while. You know, until you build up trust, um, that's what you're going to get back. Well, one of the things that struck me yeah. that you point out in the book is the, the significance it can have, that, that, that honest communication from a community's leaders, honest and consistent, like straightforward communication after the tragedy that 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 builds up a lot of social and psychological capital for the community. Likewise, the opposite can happen, right? If if people are not clear, honest, and and communicative, that at papering up, it's okay. That, that that can really have deleterious effects on the ability to heal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know when these happen. You know, most towns are not equipped for this. You know, we're learning, and there are a lot of systems that are being put in place, um, particularly in terms of securing um, safety. Um, but most leaders in these towns are not trained and not um, equipped to uh, know how to come, how to how to be out front when a tragedy like this happens. And often, what I, I certainly found it in Newtown, and I still see when I'm watching um, other communities or um, helping out in other communities. Often, what happens is the leaders feel 
compelled to come out and say, everybody's okay, we're doing great. And, you know, as people that are really struggling are hearing that message, they're screaming, no, we're not. But you can understand a leader needing to say that to keep their their community whole. So, um, you know, often I found myself in that um, maybe uncomfortable position of having to say, actually, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. And um, and then to have to fight through it to get everyone to open their eyes, you know, those leaders and embrace the work. So it's interesting. I mean, part of you writing a book like this, right, in addition to processing your experience, right, it's my like towns have tornado uh, emergency measures or storm or even now shooting things, right? Like, like, but you know, like what happens in a shooting, but there's very little, what happens if there's a shooting and it goes badly, what's the follow-up plan? Like people don't, there's generally prevention plans for natural disasters or plans for, you know, defending against school shooting. There's not a lot of planning for the aftermath, right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we came in a year and a half after. So in the book, I call the first year and a half the crisis phase, where it was really taking care of the immediate crisis and, you know, cleaning up that aftermath and relocating the schools. And 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 Sandy Hook, actually, you say in the book, right, they voted, they had to tear it down and rebuild the school. I mean, the people couldn't stand to like send their kids or drive up to the same old building. I mean, they had to raise the thing and build a whole new building. That's right. And then, you know, so they took that to a vote in the town and overwhelmingly, you know, uh, the town residents said, yes, you know, we want to build a new school and then voted to build the new school on the same piece of property. Well, you know, a couple of years later, when construction started, um, all of a sudden it was triggering many people and they felt Yes, we voted for this, but I don't think we're going to be able to drive down that road again and onto that same, you know, it was on a little bit of a different footprint, but really on the same piece of property. Um, How do we do this? The teachers in particular were so uh, triggered um, and, you know, really falling apart at that point and uh, saying, "I, I, I don't think when the school reopens, I'm going to be able to go back. So then, you know, there was a whole lot of work that we did around that. I wonder, is part of, I mean, is part of the really debilitating nature of, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a human being, right, we're storied. We don't live in the eternal now, right? We we look forward, you know, we look backward on our past and we look forward to where we think our lives are going. That orients us in the present. But I guess when you have, when you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder at these severe levels, like, there is no there is no past anymore right the past creeps into the present and you you can't tell a coherent story anymore you can't live in it you're you're like in a feedback loop which seems to make life like really just not not what norm, normally we think life should is or ought to be like that's right yeah you know uh, we would hear from many particularly the teachers that were in the school at the time there was life before the shooting and then there was life after the shooting and you know, nothing was ever the same again. Um, but, you know, what happens with trauma, what happens, you know, in our brain is that we kind of, when something is too painful um, to handle at the moment, we encapsulate it, you know, it we freeze it, but it's there. And then, you know, there are all kinds of things that can trigger 
um, that leaking, that opening up and, um, you know, a ca causing uh, mass chaos in someone's mind and body. Um, you know, we, uh, an example of that is we were sitting in our office one afternoon and um, a, one of the teachers came in, pulled into the parking lot, came running into the office and was shaking from head to toe. And um, we sat her down and asked what was happening. And she said, don't you hear the ambulances? You know, there's a whole bunch of ambulances that are going in the direction of the high school. Now, none of us had heard them, you know, because we're all kind of indoctrinated into, you know, maybe you hear it for a second and then you put it out of your mind. Um, sure enough, um, there were several ambulances and police cars that were um, heading in the direction of the high school. Um, and it, it was a scare. Nothing had happened, but there was a lockdown. But for this teacher, she was driving home and um, and heard it and uh, could not contain um, what was happening in, in her body and her mind. There's this powerful quote by Ernest Hemingway in, in, the, in the novel Farewell to Arms. He says, the world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong at the broken places. Yeah. But those that will not break, it kills. Yeah. Do you feel like that that's pretty much borne out in your work and experiences in, in these awful mass community trauma situations? Yeah. Well, I feel like that's what we're here to do is to make sure, number one, that, um, you know, we we're not leaving stones uncovered. We're not leaving people behind um, that aren't, you know, um, getting the benefit of help and treatment so that they can move forward and be resilient. Um, but sometimes that does happen. And uh, sometimes that leads to the next tragedy, you know, the, the next story on the news. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's about access. Every one of these shooters um, you will hear their profile and they're many are, are very similar. And then you'll also hear people in the community, sometimes professionals, um, educators that will say, yeah, I, I picked up on this or I saw this coming. Um, so, you know, most of these shooters are not people that were living in a, in a box that nobody knew about. Um, and they have their own history of trauma. They have their own um, unresolved um, issues um, and uh, often um, extremely traumatic events that have happened in their lives. Uh, Brene Brown says something like, uh, yeah. she, she says, you know, everyone has shame and no one likes to talk about it. But yeah. the irony is the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. <laughs> I mean, is this true? Like with a lot of deep pain and, sh and the shame around it and that this is, this is the, the, the catch 22, right? No one wants to talk about it. Because it's hard, but when you don't, it builds up and and kind of magnifies the pain. Yeah. So, you know, we have an instinct, most of us, you know, to um, not be vulnerable, right? Not put ourselves out there um, and expose those vulnerabilities for whatever reasons. You know, in the book, I talk about the first responder community really um, feeling if they allow themselves to open up and be vulnerable, they would not be able to go back and be effective on their jobs. Um, but lot, we, we all do it for lots of reasons. Um, you know, we some people that uh, would reach out to us, but then quickly say, but I don't I don't deserve for you to use um, the, the money or the resources on me. Someone else 
um, probably needs it more than I do. Um, so, you know, that idea of shame or, you know, am I worthy or am I allowed to speak out and say that I'm hurting comes in all shapes and sizes. Yeah, I think it's human instinct for us to go there first. But we're, we're trying, we're, you know, we're trying to educate people to realize, you know, um, reaching, there's no crime in reaching out, certainly. Um, it definitely helps others when you're able to say, you know, I'm just like you and I do need help. And, uh, you know, certainly I talk about in that book the concept of trauma stewardship. When you get help yourself and you're doing well enough that you can then turn to your neighbor and pass that that help on or pass those strategies on. You can be a wounded healer. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I, I again, I, I there's a whole chapter on, you know, healing the healer and um, how vitally important it is for self-care. Uh, extremely important. And often people in the field, um, you know, the clinicians, the clergy, the, the, uh, the doctors, um, we forget about that piece. We immerse ourselves so much in taking care of everyone else. You definitely seem stronger in the broken places. And anybody that would want to be, uh, want insight and wisdom in those broken places would do well to, to read Healing a Community. Thanks for writing the book, and thanks for talking with me for a few minutes about it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Melissa for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Healing a Community. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.